freedom. The unfettered ability to act or to change without constraint. Freedom. The unfettered ability to act or to change without constraint. There are three kinds of freedom. There is the freedom to, the freedom from, and the freedom to be or to become. As a child of God, you and I have been set free from the power and the penalty of sin. Romans chapter 6 verse 14 says so. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Free from sin. And because you and I are no longer constrained to follow our passions and our lusts, we have been set free to pursue righteousness. Romans chapter 6 verse 12 says, Therefore sin is not to reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the parts of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your bodies parts as instruments of righteousness for God, free to pursue righteousness. Free from sin, and because we're free from sin, we're free to pursue righteousness unrestricted. And therefore, we are free to be or to become like Jesus Christ. The door is open to every child of God to become like Jesus Christ. The way has been made, the foundation has been laid. But this is where the challenge lies for many believers. I am free to become like Jesus, but how? This becomes the question. And this question of utility often leads into a quest to find or to invent our own paths towards spiritual transformation trying to become like Jesus. Each one of us individually carving our own path to becoming like Jesus. Individualism is the greatest self-made barrier to our pursuit of transformation. Individualism is the greatest threat that we face as we pursue our transformation, our conscious and sometimes unconscious tendency to strike out into the darkness all alone without a guide. It has led to many shipwrecks, false doctrines, and spiritual disillusionment than any plan or plot our enemy has ever devised. Our inability to follow our God-given spiritual escorts 
unintentionally leaves us spinning our spiritual wheels, spending more time trying to find our spiritual bearings and making little to no progress in our spiritual journey toward the house of our God. Paul the Apostle is on assignment to the Gentiles. Down Philippians in verse 17 and says this, brothers and sisters, join in following my example. Be my disciples. That's what he's saying. Imitate my life. Assume my values. Reproduce my teachings. Join in following my example. That's what it means to be a disciple. Now it takes either a lot of faith or possibly a good dose of arrogance for one believer to invite other believers to enroll in their school of the Spirit. It takes a lot of faith or a lot of arrogance. Follow my example. After all, there are other paths, there are other means by which the Philippians could attain to Christ's conformity besides following Paul. There is the path of Peter, there is the path of James, there is the path of John, and so many other people they could follow. Paul is aware of that. And should anyone choose to follow another path, Paul would be fine with that. Because Paul can't judge the way Peter practices following Jesus. He doesn't understand Peter's way. Paul is not well acquainted with John's spiritual curriculum. The only path that Paul the Apostle knows is the way that Jesus has brought him. Paul knows by experience that this is a good way. Paul has been traumatized, then led by the hand then miraculously healed, then left by God to wander for 14 years and finally sent to the Gentiles. Paul has been stoned, persecuted, and rejected, but somehow, even though his life has been so hard by most men's standards, Paul the apostle has managed to keep his eyes on the prize. Through all of life's struggles and challenges, Paul has never lost his focus. Paul has never become bitter, never second-guessed his life decisions in following Jesus. Paul is an overcomer. Paul is an overcomer. An overcomer is one who by God's grace has peered into the prospects of death or lived under life's heavy burdens without wavering from his commitment. Paul is an overcomer. He's never walked away from the battle. He's never broken down or given up. Paul 
is an overcomer. In other words, when Paul invites these believers to follow his example, Paul knows that the way he is going to lead them will cause them to be and to become overcomers as well. Paul knows the way that God has taken him and he isn't inviting others to follow his example. He's certain that his way works. Paul has proof. There are some right there in Philippi who have already taken Paul's mantle. And the ones who have taken Paul's mantle share in Paul's testimony that the way Paul leads and lives is tested, tried, and true. Join in following my example, Paul says, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Observe them. It means watch them closely. The ones who have long since become disciples of my way, watch and see how they hold up under burdens. Watch to see how peaceful they can appear in the midst of the storm. Watch carefully how they adore Jesus Christ, how they respond to crisis. Watch them carefully and you will see that as they are following me, they too are becoming overcomers. My way works. If you watch them carefully, you will learn how to unlock your own kingdom potential. You will learn how to war in the spirit, how to pray until something happens. Watch them closely, Paul says. Paul wasn't able to be there with them physically because he's locked away in prison, as we know. But even when you go back to just a few verses before before these verses and review Paul's grand vision of pursuing Jesus, as you listen to Paul, as he moves effortlessly from the bondage of a cage into the very gates of heaven, you can learn by his temperament and by his demeanor that Paul's way is the way of the overcomer. Paul's way is a way that is worth imitating. You ever think about that? All those beautiful and wonderful prose that Paul wrote, that he wrote them from a prison cell, this proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that Paul's way works. Paul is able to connect with the Spirit even from a jail cell when he has lost everything. When you read those verses that come before, it doesn't even sound like Paul is in prison. It doesn't even sound like Paul is in the world. He sounds lofty. He sounds above it all. Paul's way works. Paul knows his way works. Every child of God is free to become like Jesus. But Jesus Christ has provided examples for us to follow if we are to attain to a greater knowledge of him. The greatest challenge facing 21st century believers is finding a guide that is worthy of following. The greatest challenge, in my opinion, in the 21st century for believers is finding a guide 
that is worthy of following. Paul is an overcomer. But not every overcomer overcomes by the same means. Paul is an overcomer by faith in Jesus Christ alone, not by his own schemes, not by his own machinations, not because of his education or his own tenacity or determination. Paul is an overcomer because he believes above, he lives above the struggles and the vicissitudes of this life. He has his eyes and his focus on Jesus Christ alone. That's why Paul is an overcomer. But Paul warns us in verse 18 that there are some others. In fact, Paul says that there are many who walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even as I weep that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Those are hard words. I've told you before, brothers and sisters, I'm telling you again, even while I'm crying, that there are many who are walking, there are many who are leading, who are the enemies of the cross of Christ. He doesn't say they are enemies of Christ. Of course, if you're an enemy of the cross of Christ, then you may be an enemy of Christ himself. But Paul specifically says that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. They disdain the idea of suffering. They reject the prospect of experiencing any kind of pain or any inconvenience. They view any form of correction or rebuke as wholly unnecessary and an affront to their dignity. There are many who are leading who are like this, Paul warns. Paul is an overcomer. But to say that Paul is an overcomer naturally implies that Paul has had many adversaries, many obstacles, and much suffering in his life. Paul is an overcomer because he had something to overcome. Life has not been easy. Let me tell you this, you can write it down. One does not become an overcomer without successfully subduing the trials and tribulations of this life and getting the victory. You cannot become an overcomer without a cross to bear. And that's Paul's resume. Since the moment Jesus Christ knocked him down off of his steed, Paul has been living under pressure. He's been always subjected to the lash of heaven. Paul has lived his entire Christian life in the crucible of Christ's cross. This is his resume. Suffering is his resume. And this is the place where the lukewarm believer dares not to tread. And this is why Paul is crying. Paul cries because there are many who call themselves leaders of the blind who themselves are blinded by the lie that one may attain to the lofty height of glorification without participating in the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ. These are the ones who promise glory without pain. 
They guarantee their followers spiritual peace without trouble. And it's simply not true. It is not the way of Christ. But their, their way looks and sounds and seems like a better way than Paul's way. And just as there are many of them peddling these false concepts of the blessed life, there are far more who follow them into the abyss of eternal destruction. Paul says in verse 19 that their end is destruction. Their way does not lead to eternal life. And if you watch them closely, you can see it. They are pretenders, they are hypocrites, haters of authority, unwilling to be wrong, unable to entertain any insults, easily outraged, over-controlling. Because, Paul says, their God is their appetite. Their God is their appetite. Hungry for power. Starving for first place, famished for attention, and willing to do or say whatever you want to hear if you will just follow them. They are greedy, selfish, spoiled, and Paul cries not for them, but he cries because they are training and convincing other believers that this is the mindset and the way that leads to life, and it is not. And their followers become easily agitated, angered at the slightest intimation of discomfort or inconvenience. Their followers become high-maintenance believers who through their unwillingness to be put upon by heaven forfeit their own inheritance. And while they should have been learners, they assume the role of teachers. But their curriculum does not entail the cross. Hmm. By the word of God and from experience, Paul the apostle has come to understand that there is no crown without the cross. Paul has also learned that unless a believer gladly and voluntarily undergoes heaven's discipline, he will not stand before God. These are the ones who seek glory, but what is glory before men is shame before God. Paul says that their glory is in their shame. And this is because while they should have been more desirous and attuned to heavenly things, Paul says they have their minds on earthly things. They have the wrong focus. They're looking for the wrong thing. They are fettered to this world and its cares. They want the glory and the approval of men. They want wealth and they want riches. They want to accomplish their dreams and their life goals, which may not be what God has designed for them. They want to exercise this world's power to control the affairs of men. They want to be important and to leave a legacy in the world not realizing that this is a world that will soon fade away. They are chasing the wind and they are inviting others to chase the wind with them. 
their minds are on earthly things. They are worldly. They are earthly minded. They read the Bible for solutions instead of for transformation. They are not subject to the word of God. But instead, they twist the word of God to suit their own personal agendas. They have a desire. And they seek their highest good from this world and from this earthly life. To make it simple, they are looking for heaven in earthly things. I was speaking with the elders about this the other night. There are a lot of believers who are looking for heaven on earth. A lot of dissatisfied Christians who are so frustrated because they are expecting to find heaven here. They move to a community trying to find heaven. And then when there's a murder in their community, they get on the news and say, I would have never believed this would have happened here. They thought they had found heaven on earth. They get the job of their dreams and they find out that it's just a lot of stress and there's so much politics going on. They're always frustrated, taking all kinds of medications. They can't believe how terrible this job is. They dreamed about it all of their lives. And when they get there, they hate it. They were looking for heaven on earth. They join a church and the music is not right for them. And the ministry doesn't work right for them. And they have to go and find another place because they were looking for heaven on earth. It's not always a bad thing. Sometimes they have good intentions. There are those who want to change the world for the better. As if here is where they will spend all of eternity. They're looking for heaven and earthly things, jobs and possessions, relationships and institutions, endeavors and initiatives, spiritual experiences of elevated consciousness. <laughs> and while Christ may permit all of these things, none of these things can fully satisfy the deepest longings of the heart of the children of God. They are looking for perfection in this world. They are looking for the ideal in men or institutions. And they are always non-committal, always on the verge of walking away from everything because nothing seems to suit their ideal because they put their faith and their confidence in, er in earthly things and not in Jesus Christ alone. The world does not satisfy. The world cannot satisfy. But these that Paul is describing, they're earthly minded. Paul wants something else. Paul wants something more. Paul the apostle is kingdom minded. And to be kingdom minded means first and foremost to recognize that our citizenship, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. It's not here. Our citizenship 
is in heaven. I am in this world, but I am not of this world. And how does this kingdom mindset affect my existence in the world? Well, because I am not of this world, I expect nothing from this world. Let me say it again. Because I am not of this world, I expect nothing from this world. The world cannot disappoint me because I am not expecting much from it. People cannot disappoint me because I am not expecting much from them. Institutions cannot disturb me because I am not expecting much from them. I am not looking for heaven here. My citizenship is in heaven. And I expect nothing from this world, not from my neighbor, not from my government, not from my family, not even from my church. I fully recognize that nothing in this world will ever be as good as it can be. I recognize that I will not see perfection in any form as long as I live in this strange land. This may be one of the most uncomfortable and disconcerting Facts about walking with Jesus. That nothing here will ever live up to the truest and highest potential. That no matter how hard I try, no matter how consistently I and others work at it, no permanent good will come from any of our endeavors. This place, this world that was so fallen when I arrived will be just as fallen and undone when I take my leave. That's hard to accept. I was speaking with my sister the other night and we were going back and forth in debate. I'll call it a debate. About the purpose of the church, about the purpose of believers. And, and she was giving me all of her examples about how well, we should be activists and we should be out there doing this and doing that and bringing this and bringing that, bringing about change and making peace. And, coming and I'm saying, sis, 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 no. You can do all of those things if you'd like, but please do not labor under the misnomer that you are about to make the world a better place. It's not gonna happen. <laughs> Jesus Christ never told you to do that. He never told me to do that. He never told me to make the world a better place. Jesus told me that I am in this world, but I am not of this world. This world is falling. This is a burning ship, and no matter how much water you throw, it's going to keep on burning. That's disconcerting. That's this, isn't it? It's discomforting when you think about that. Even for some believers, it's depressing. Those who find their greatest satisfaction in the kingdom of heaven are those who have come to realize that there is nothing here. There's nothing here. The world is only a shadow that will soon pass away. 
This confronting of our existential reality in the world can be daunting. No one wants to hear that all of their earthly striving, that all of their earthly gains have no merit and have no value in heaven, but that is the truth. <laughs> That's the truth. And whatever I am holding on to, brothers and sisters, whatever you are holding on to, whatever dream, whatever earthly vision that fills your mind, it is blinding you from the vision of heaven. That is the place from which the new man that is you was born. That is the place of which you hold citizenship, the kingdom of heaven. But again, this is the rub. Because while if I am a sincere believer, I have let go of all earthly expectation, heaven is still out of reach. This is the place that we have been called to inhabit. The earth is here, heaven is here, and I give my life to Jesus, he says, let go of the world. And I say, okay, I'll let it go for heaven, yes. And I reach, but heaven is out of reach. And I move a little further away from the world, reach again, seemed like heaven moved further away. And I'm looking back because at least I was holding something over here. You're calling me into a life where I'm not holding anything. This is the difficulty of being a child of God. This is where faith comes into play. Because I am called to let go and then wait on it. Isn't that what God did with Abraham? Leave your country, leave your family, leave your father's house. Okay, I'll let go of all of that for you, God, yes. Where are we going? I'll tell you later. Huh? You want me to leave my family, leave my father's house, leave, and you're not going to tell me where I'm going? Just follow me. That is the difficulty. <laughs> Living in the in-between. That is the uncomfortable place that not many Christians like to abide in. And this is why so many fine prophets, fine preachers, who can say things to soothe the pain, to make them feel good about following, they don't want to just be out here in this limbo place, this unknown, this uncertainty. They want something to hold on to. And so these false preachers come along and give them something to hold on to. This is the place that the child of God has been called to inhabit. The place of now and not yet. That's where we live. That's where we reside. That is faith.
Paul says that heaven is the place from which we also eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In summary then, what Paul is inviting us into is the place of waiting. Join in following my example. Okay, Paul, I, I, I like you, I'm gonna follow you. Follow my, and Paul says, well, what are we gonna do, Paul? Okay, Paul, all right, Paul, it's been 30 minutes. What are we gonna do, Paul? Join me, Paul says, in eagerly waiting for Jesus. In the military, we had a saying, they say, hur, 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 hurry up and wait. You ever heard that? Hurry up and wait. In the military, you get up 4.35 o'clock in the morning, every morning, you go outside, you do your exercise for an hour and a half, everybody's feeling good, sweaty, go back, take a shower, everybody goes to the breakfast at the same time, goes to the mess hall, get your food, then you hurry back to formation where we all get assembled together. The whole battalion is there. We're all standing side by side. Everybody's ready. And they say, parade, rest. Then they say, at ease. And you stand there at ease for an hour. An hour and a half. Hurry up and wait. All of that you just went through, getting ready, getting prepared, shining your boots, all this to get in formation at ease. Just stand there and wait for us to come back and talk to you. Now, hurry up and wait. That's what we do. The evangelist standing on the street corner, urgently calling men to follow Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. Today may be your last day. The preacher who brought you to salvation. Today may be your last day. Give your life to Jesus. Trust God for salvation. And those who hear the call, they come to Jesus. But when they get here, they can't wait to get started with their new marching orders. And they are told to wait. Not wait for an hour, not wait even for a day, but wait until Jesus comes. And this is the paradox of the Christian life. And this aspect of the kingdom is what makes the pretender so much more appealing to people. He promises heaven and he promises it here and now. He assures you that you can make a difference around you because you're just bored. You will start trying to find Jesus in everything, in every group, in every group of people, and this, I can't be satisfied with that, I gotta find something better. You're moving around, you know, you're not right. You're just bored. I posit to you today that most Christians are just bored. I, I say this, not as any badge of mine. I have enough sins in my life to cover this whole room. I'm nobody important. But I am never bored with my walk with Jesus. I am never bored. You should never be bored following Jesus. 
And if you're bored, if you're feeling discontent, if you're feeling unsettled, quiet yourself down. Sit yourself down and just reflect on him. You'll never get bored chasing Jesus because every once in a while, while you're sitting there still and quiet, he gives you a glimpse of himself as he's passing by. Just to let you know, you're not losing your mind, son. I'm here. I'm just not here right now. Yeah. And he plays that game of hide and seek with you. If you're bored, look for Jesus. Don't look for the world and don't look for heaven in earthly things. It's not here. I'm sorry to be the one to bring you the bad news. It's just not here. I said last week, and it sounds like an oxymoron, that the best thing that could have happened to Paul the Apostle was that he be put in jail, was that he be imprisoned. Because it was from prison that Paul the Apostle wrote most of the New Testament. It was from prison sitting still and quiet that Paul got some of the greatest revelations that have ever been given to man in stillness and in silence, not in evangelism, not in church planting, not in anything else, in stillness and in silence. He looked for Jesus. Hmm. That's all Paul was doing every day. He couldn't do anything else. He was confined to four walls and all day all he did was watch the pendulum of heaven's big bend swing back and forth. And that was his life. But what about you and me? We're not in prison. So what should we be doing? How should we be spending our days? What is the purpose? What is the focus? What is the agenda? Everybody always wants to know that. You guys have probably read the book about purpose, finding your purpose in the world. What is the purpose? What should be the focus? What should be the agenda? What should we be doing? Interesting questions. But I tell you today that as long as you have these kinds of questions, you will never come to truly understand what kingdom living is all about. It is only once you find deliverance from the need to do anything other than watch for Jesus that you will begin to function as a, from a kingdom mindset, as a saint in the world. Only when you don't desire to do anything but follow Jesus, but look for Jesus. The highest form of our faith consists in watching and waiting for Jesus. That is the pinnacle of the Christian faith and nothing else. Anything else that we do, we do it because Christ directs it. Yet what we do is never our purpose. Our only purpose here in this world is to wait for Jesus. This is the first, this is the most true reason for our being here. When I become okay with that fact, then I can do a thousand things for his glory. All because I am no longer looking for my purpose in the doing, but in the being and becoming more like Jesus.
and I become more like Jesus Christ when I voluntarily take up the cross, when I undergo suffering in this world gladly, when I only pursue him. There is much to do in this world. There are many endeavors, many things that Christians can do to be a blessing to those around us in this world. But my point to us today is simply this, that before you do anything, get your priorities in order. The priority is to look for Jesus. That's number one. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness. Then you can do whatever you want. But if you are doing so much and you're not focusing and you're not looking for Jesus eagerly, then what you're doing is of no consequence in the kingdom of God. So this is a call to reprioritize and to join in following Paul the apostle. <laughs> As he seeks to lay hold of the one who laid hold of him. That was his only endeavor. That was his only mission and desire in life was to lay hold of Jesus. Look at all the great things he did. But he did them from a place of stillness and silence and of devotion to Christ. Not out of his own strength. He wasn't compelled or constrained. Once he found Jesus, he was able to flow with the Spirit of God. And then the work was easy didn't require much planning, didn't require much stress, because when you flow with the Spirit, God does the work and not you. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, there are so many things to love about you. your character, your promises, your faithfulness, your goodness, your loving kindness. But today we come before you, Father God, not to describe what we love about you, but to love you, yourself, for who you are. Lord Jesus Christ, be or become the center of our desire. Our hearts will not be satisfied until we are filled with you and your presence in our lives. Restore the joy of our salvation. Renew our faith and our confidence in you and your promises. Give us the spiritual energy and the spiritual power, Lord God, to recommit ourselves on a deeper level to focusing solely upon you alone. Give us a vision of yourself. Fill the longing of our heart. And every day, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would make us hungry and thirsty all over again until we see you come in the air. May we eagerly await and anticipate your second coming to this world. 
May we eagerly await the day that you make all things new. In Jesus' name, amen.